0: We've never seen human beings live under one system. So the idea that somehow now we've discovered it and it's liberal democracy is probably not correct.
1: Welcome back to the Empire's New Clothes. If you're here with us every week, thank you so much. If this is your first time, what we do is we look at the forces that make and break an empire. If you like what we're doing and you enjoy this episode or others, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It's the best way to help us reach more people so we can keep doing this. We're about to speak with Dimitri Kafinas. He is the creator and host of Hidden Forces podcast. He's been in the finance world for a long time. He was the creator and author of a well read blog, a radio show, and a daily TV program. Very excited to speak with D- Dimitri because On his show, Hidden Forces, he speaks with a ton of different people, yet he himself has very nuanced and articulated thoughts as well in this whole realm. So he's the perfect person to bring together these many different thoughts and concepts and deliver them into a concise, well-thought-out message. I hope you enjoy. Dimitri, thanks so much for coming on today. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so little backstory here. I've I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. You bring on some fascinating guests. I've noticed we have a little bit of crossover. Um, and I've been very excited to talk to you because you have a very similar, uh, be it curiosity, vision, motive for your show. You're looking at the hidden forces of markets. And, um, and we're looking at the hidden forces of empires. And so I would love to know what brought you there w- w- where did this curiosity come from
0: well I don't know where the curiosity came from I've always <laughs> I've always had that curiosity I recently actually interviewed uh, a guest James Aitken who said the same thing that he was when when he was a kid he would always look at things from a very early age and be like well how does that work or like why does that mm-hmm. work that way or and I would always be that way so I always had a, a curiosity but my in, and that curiosity found a natural outlet in financial markets because I think, in retrospect, they were, they're were they endlessly complex. And you yes. can never really get to the bottom of anything. And uh, when you don't know that, um, you can easily get sucked into them because you think that you're going to figure it out. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'd say I had a similar experience with philosophy, actually. When I first began to study philosophy as a, a high school student, then as an undergraduate, I had this idea that I would be able to figure it out. I'd be able to figure out the nature of existence. Uh, but you realize that the, there's a reason why these things, have, these questions have persisted <laughs> over time. So the same is true of financial markets. And Hidden Forces was something that I um, I came to, this idea of doing a podcast called Hidden Forces, because I asked myself the question, what was it that attracted me so much to financial markets? And I, I came to the realization that it wasn't specifically because it had to do with money or the economy, but rather because it was this infinitely complex data set. Uh, and also because of the social science component, which again, it, it speaks to the complexity. And I was always interested in well, what's driving the market? Can I get deeper down the vector of what's really happening here? And I wanted to imply that curiosity and that framework, or rather perhaps the frameworks that I applied to understanding financial markets Mm -hmm. to the broader world, and then to find a way to make that useful for investors specifically, because I recognized that there was an opportunity to service that community. I I was well aware of and familiar with the newsletter industry because I used to to read it, read financial newsletters going back to when I was a senior in high school, so that sort of it was it was a way to make this work uh to find an audience, an initial audience that I could target, but then with the eventual goal of scaling it to a broader community of people who were just interested in this stuff
1: that's super cool, and so what have you found so far
0: um, <laughs> what have I found so far? <laughs> well, uh, it's I've it, I have more questions than answers. Probably, <laughs>
1: yeah, that's it's how it goes, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, what I would say is, it, what's interesting is where, how my interests and focus have have evolved. Um, early on, I, I had I have I have as uh, in terms of my career a background in tech, so to speak, specifically in the video game industry and in the application development and design side of television's UX UI. Um, and that's how I ended up transitioning into content. I was always interested in in content, specifically documentary film. Um, and so I, I eventually made that transition into the content side. But my background was in tech. And when I started Hidden Forces, I wanted to um, sort of uh, – reacquaint myself with my passion for that stuff, for the sciences, for Mm -hmm. technology, for math. So if you look early on, my episodes were mathematics, episodes on philosophical mathematics, science, philosophy of science, philosophy in general. Uh, But as time went on, I I naturally gravitated back to, surprise, surprise, the things that (laughs) I seemed to always enjoy, which were not just finance and markets. But also geopolitics and foreign mm. affairs, which is what my major, one of my major majors was. I majored in both economics and um, politics, specifically with an emphasis on foreign policy and international relations, and a minor in psychology. So, those things, that and the interplay of culture are the things that most interest me, it seems. That's where my focus has gone.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting cocktail of studies. It it sounds like early on, you kind of had a bit of a vision of, I don't know if vision's a bit too heavy, but you're saying you studied or you're interested in philosophy in high school. I was 100% not interested in philosophy in high school. Mm. And and in high school, uh, I actually, I was obsessed with climbing. I just climbed. Um, Oh,
0: interesting. Okay. But (laughs) so you were entirely focused on athletics.
1: Um. I don't know about entirely. I, I grew up in Atlanta, and so I was interested in – I was going to concerts. I was doing, like, high school stuff. I see. I wasn't right. interested in, like, pondering these big questions. I was just a kid living – didn't really know what I wanted to do, just having fun. But it sounds like you had some very interesting uh, endeavors for that age, and then they are still relevant today, mm. which I find quite fascinating, actually. Mm-hmm. And so – I've noticed that philosophy does play a pretty good role in hidden forces. Um, do you, do you find that helps you think about markets in, in any capacity?
0: I'm sure it does. Uh, -hmm. I didn't, I, I, in retrospect, I might've considered majoring in philosophy. I was, Mm. I was dissuaded from doing so by my parents. Who told me that I would end up like Socrates, <laughs> or on the streets of Athens, without a home, without any money? Uh, but in retrospect, that was obviously not correct. I think people that study philosophy can apply themselves to all sorts of areas mm-hmm. of of work and towards any towards solving all sorts of problems because it's a modality of thinking. So yes, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure it does help me. I don't have an immediate way to to think about that. Perhaps my sort of the way that i thought about this concept of financial nihilism which i've talked about in a series of other interviews mm-hmm. probably came from that um from reading <laughs> nietzsche and other philosophers and thinking about reality versus perception value versus price and what happens when our 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 notions of value are we're disabused of those and mm-hmm. the nihilism comes out of that um so I think that's one area where it's probably helped me. Well, well maybe let's
1: dive into that a little bit because I, I know you have spoken a bit about this idea of financial nihilism. And I, I would certainly love to hear some more of your thoughts and perhaps to the viewers, like, what is that? And how did you start to reach some of these conclusions and observations?
0: Well, I, I, I sort of roughly define financial nihilism or market nihilism. Mm -hmm. as an investing philosophy or an investment philosophy that views the objects of speculation as though they were intrinsically worthless. Mm. And this is a meaningful departure from a framework that I had used up until this point, which was informed by people like Karl Popper and most specifically George Soros, who borrowed so much from Popper, which is that there is an empirical world, that that world has value that we can discern, and that there is a perceptual layer of reality, and that that is where price exists. And to the extent that the two diverge represents opportunities either for remaining in cash with optionality or actually being invested. In other words, if price exceeds value, you want to stay on the sidelines. If value exceeds price, if in other words, if something is undervalued, then you want to be invested. Um I think I still believe this to be true. I still think there is an empirical reality, uh, a a discernible, an objectively discernible reality. uh, And I still think that our perception of reality is never perfectly aligned with it. However, I think that we are in a phase now where people's confidence in that type of model has been dramatically shaken. Their confidence in the values that they grew up with. Uh, the, their confidence in institutions, all of those things. and out of that is born this nihilism. Mm-hmm. and I specifically call it financial nihilism because we 've seen it on display in financial markets with respect specifically to meme stops, uh, to, mean, to meme stocks, uh, also in cryptocurrencies. Uh, and it's this idea that well, reality really doesn't matter. What matters is perception entirely. But one step further, concluding that we can alter perception permanently and exist entirely within that perceptual realm and never have to be accountable to what's happening in the, in the real world. And I think that mm-hmm. is a that's, – that's not just troubling. I think it's ultimately false. Uh, but we're living through a period where you have to understand that, I think, in order to invest. Um, so that's how I would define it.
1: And then your personal beliefs there. Do you? I mean, I feel. I feel like you kind of hinted at that. But do you agree with that? And do you look at that as an investment uh, framework for yourself? Just because mm-hmm. it's so prevalent,
0: I certainly have invested accordingly. I've had mm-hmm. to. I've. I've. Uh, it's not. It's not like a comfort zone for me. I'm much. I operate much better in a world where I can value something and then I can determine whether it's over or undervalued.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But I have selectively speculated with this framework in mind. A perfect example is an episode I did on Ethereum. Uh, Ethereum ultrasound money, the concept of ultrasound money and EIP-1559 and proof of stake. And to the extent that I, again, I don't talk much about my personal investments uh insofar as they don't conflict with anything I do, and I certainly make disclaimers, but i never I never create content with the purpose of uh, of pumping any particular thing mm-hmm. but to the extent that I've invested in Ethereum or speculated rather um, it's been primarily because of that thesis and not because mm-hmm. of the underlying value of the network, which I think is no longer possible to 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 meaningfully discern or at least not for me. One, I think it's important to point out that that uh, cryptocurrencies and and blockchain blockchains and these networks in general, in order to understand them, you have to devote a lot of time, and yeah. most people just don't have the time to do that. So most of the money that's that's invested in the space is, is quote dumb money, um, and so one, there's that, and then two, it's very difficult to discern value because the heuristics that most of us depend on. In order to determine whether or not something is valuable or how valuable it is, are broken because of the, mm-hmm. the, the, the tidal waves of liquidity and the uh, just rampant optimism in the space. Yeah. So, um, so, but that doesn't mean that you can't speculate on the margin, uh, and I think responsibly uh, by using some of these models around financial nihilism that you know, I've developed that I think about that I've talked about on the, on the podcast and, and most specifically in other interviews.
1: Well, it's interesting. This also makes me think of, and folks listening have maybe heard me say this before in other interviews, but it seems like we're living in a post-truth world. And I've heard you say before that our, our goal should be to create a more equitable society that is self-correcting. And to be self-correcting, there needs to be some core vision the majority agree on. And so if everything can be relativized, then it seems challenging to imagine a reality or a future where we all have that core truth, that core belief that mm-hmm. can guide society self-correcting. And so this is kind of like a philosophical question for you. Do we need a different philosophical foundation, a non-post-truth culture before this can happen? Or is it possible to create a core vision that society can self-correct around in, within the current uh, state of affairs?
0: When you say within the current for, uh, uh, state of affairs, are you saying can we, can we live as society in a post-truth world, i.e., in a world where everyone more or less no longer believes in empirically discernible consensus truth?
1: Yeah, so I think there's I think in one part there's a element of how people behave and act, and and they will say things like everyone must create their own truth or there is no truth. Sure. Whereas live your truth. <laughs> exactly. And there's built-in contradictions to that because you're you're stating an absolute truth claim, of course. So mm. there's in one way this like contradictory framework, but then there's another way that, you know, just because I might believe that doesn't mean my day is gonna go poorly. Like I can still live an interesting and fulfilling life potentially, but we all have these competing visions of what truth is. And there might be some QAnon truth, there might be some climate change mm. truth, there'll be some all these different truths. So in a world like that, is it possible to have a core central vision that society can self-correct itself and have this more equitable society that if there's an outlying event that brings society into a non-equitable space, it kicks it back to this core vision.
0: I wouldn't even, I, I don't, am not entirely sure where um, where you're placing uh, references of, of, equitable or quick kick it back i'm not sure but what i would say is no <laughs> i don't think it's possible for human beings to live in civilization without some unifying mythologies that they mm-hmm. tell themselves and at the limit telling yourself that there is truth um or there is uh, some core reality that you can all discern discern and ontological reality i think is false that that, that there is no way to determine ontological truth that there is this is a complicated conversation because i do believe i believe that truth exists first of all i believe that there is a reality ontological reality but i don't think that we have the ability to discern it empirically i think we we approximate it and Mm -hmm. we develop models to try and interact with the world Um, But those models are essential for understanding. And so we have to come to a certain consensus view of what models we want to work with. So in other words, what I'm I'm trying to say is that the observation that we live in a subjective universe is correct. But that's not a a model that we can all rally around and live with. Hmm. We have to have things that we agree on. In order to be an organized society. So that's, that's kind of the answer to my question, to your question.
1: Yeah, I, I guess what I was, and no, and, and that's a great answer. And so to take it uh, possibly a step further or highlight something that I wasn't able to explain perfectly the first time is in our current framework, is it possible to have an, an, a more equitable society that's self correcting? Or are we gonna need a completely different
0: framework? So I want to see if I understand what you're saying because you said this again, self-correcting. What what needs to be corrected just so I understand what you're talking about?
1: Oh, you know, I'm not sure. This is actually a quote of yours from, from one of your – this – I took it as this sounded like kind of your vision of where you would envision society being. Um, okay,
0: so then I think I know what you're talking about. So in terms of self-correcting, I mean there are certain things – um, that our current society is struggling with. For example, Mm -hmm. um, it's something that I've talked about as the, as a, as the, the, uh, gravitational collapse, uh, brought about by an overwhelming amount of private sector debt. So this is one area where society has not been able to, our economy has not been able to self-correct. Um, I I think it could self-correct, uh, theoretically, or it could have self-corrected at some point within our our system. But the recurring bailouts, I think, moved us to a place where a self-correction at that point could have sent the system into some type of totalitarian model uh, or socialist model of governance. So, um, so I guess it, in that respect, um, and I'm not sure, do you remember what episode it was? I think I should say this. So There was a time in my life where, and I think this also was true in the early days of the show, where I was looking for a system like that. Was there some Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, not perfect system, but good enough system Mm -hmm. that was the ideal system to live under for eternity? And that this system was in in effect self-correcting, that it wouldn't be without casualties, but more or less you you would get some kind of steady state equilibrium over time. I have I have some doubts about that now. I what changed? I don't know if if I can point to any specific thing that changed. I think just looking at the world more, reading more history, thinking about the problems that we confront, I you know, for example, is liberal democracy the system that uh, is best for humanity at every single stage of its development. That might not be true. I mean, there might be. We certainly know that that's not true, actually, because we fought. We fought, We fought the Civil War and suspended uh, certain rights in order to do it. We fought. We fought World War II. Uh, we've. It, it, and yes, we didn't lose our democracy in the process, but we compromise on many of the things that we take for granted during peacetime. And so I think different types of problems implore leaders and governments to make alterations. So I don't know. I think you know it, it, it remains to be seen. I think over the arc of history, human beings self-organize in all sorts of different ways. And it's hard to say what system is right for the entirety of, of – we've never seen human beings live under one system. So the idea mm-hmm. that somehow now we've discovered it and it's liberal democracy – is probably not correct
1: yeah yeah if you look back at history well there's a lot of conclusions you could draw but one of them that i i seem to see this constant throughout all of history is humans are constantly looking for a better and better system we are constantly striving or working forward back middle for a better form of governance
0: or the ideal
1: Exactly, the some some utopian form, <clears throat> and and you know it's in one part it's almost tragic because we keep doing the same thing and never getting there, but another part it's quite valiant because we keep trying even though we never succeed, and mm. so it, it's it's this interesting dichotomy of mm. uh, some really core essence of humanity, which um, are both good and bad, I think, and so to kind of go further, you mentioned some periods in US history where we, let's call them the period of compromise for liberal democracy, where we compromised values and freedoms for what at the time could be a narrative of for better values and freedoms in the future. You mentioned the Civil War, World War II. In one way, it feels like we're working towards – we're America's building towards some big monumental moment. Um, I would love to be the only one who thinks or believes this, and I'd love to be completely wrong. And I'm just wondering if you feel the same way at all.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. I mean towards one monumental moment, I don't know. Uh, But certainly –
1: Yeah, that that could be a bit dramatic.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but certainly we're moving towards a resolution. Mm-hmm. And by resolution, that I don't want to suggest that the outcome of that will, will be good or bad, but simply will resolve an unsustainable state of affairs, mm. which is the state of affairs that we live in today. And uh, though we didn't know it, that may have begun after the fall of the Berlin Wall, maybe sometime between the fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11, though probably in the early part, part of the 1990s. Because I don't think the model that we've been living in since then really had the the right mix of things that human beings need to live successfully in the world. Um, So and one example of that is an organizing narrative. The organizing narrative after the fall of the Berlin Wall has been something along the lines of uh, some kind of utilitarian argument for mass consumerism and comfort and that people would sort of be motivated by the desire of growing rich and just getting richer and richer and ultimately Mm. while that it would be nice if human beings were satisfied with absolute comfort it's not true people care about relative standing number one number two people care about more than just material wealth you know uh, they need a unifying vision. They need a mission both in their personal lives and I think in their national aspirations. I don't know if a society can organize in the, in the form of a nation or a nation state without a unifying set of beliefs that bind them together. And, and, in, and in fact, what we have today is the opposite of that. What you see is that within the United States, we are tearing each other apart. The, the common enemy that we've identified is no longer from without it's no longer the Mm -hmm. Soviet union or the, or Nazi Germany or the British or the South during the civil war, which was internally divisive. Uh, but it was the union against the Confederacy. It is now ourselves. Uh, and you, you don't really know exactly who the enemy is. You're always trying to discern who the enemy is. And so this is not a fundamentally sustainable state of affairs, and I think that's just one example of a mix of things that the United States has to resolve, the country needs to resolve in order to uh, bring us back to a place where we can um, you know, live under a sustainable model for, again, an indefinite period of time.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting that you kind of highlight we, we are our own enemy currently. <clears throat> and a kind of subtext, a theme that, keeps cropping up in in certainly my thinking of all this is that if humans if we've never once created the perfect system perhaps not the system that needs fixing but us and so that really gets that point you just brought up and Mm so i do you do you think about that of like we're so focused on tinkering and fixing the system we number one probably don't want to don't want to actually look at what is the heart condition of humanity because we are it's easy to become um distracted with this other project over here that mm-hmm. has clearly never worked quite yet. It, do you do you think about those two things at all?
0: Well, um I've thought about that in the context of of uh genomic science and notions of artificial intelligence and symbiosis I think the the issue you run into there in terms of advocating for the evolution of humanity in order to fit itself into an ideal system is to what extent do are you no longer human? And asking I think asking most people to support uh anything that would result in a in a in a a race of humans, or a species, a non, non-homo sapien type evolved ape, would be that it's kind of like committing it's like committing suicide in a way. Um, yeah. And I think we see it's interesting. Um, Andrew Sullivan, or rather I'm sorry, Andrew Solomon, uh, wrote a book called "Far from the Tree." where he talks about all of these aberrant cases of parents who have children who are deaf, homosexual, transgender, that have Down syndrome, et cetera, dwarf um, characteristics, to highlight the, the challenges um, and the suffering that emerges from having children that are sufficiently different from you. And we're just we're talking about human beings here. We're not talking about alien species. And I think that that does speak to like a real biological um, antipathy towards the kinds of things that you're describing. So um, I do think about it, but it's not something that I really would like. I don't know. I mean, I think hope, I think evolution is something that should happen over a long period of time, or that's how it historically mm-hmm. has happened. So people are able to cope with it. But the idea of genetically engineering the human species, or developing such uh, exponentially advanced technologies that displace us, or that empower a new race of humans who can use them to uh, rule over the rest of us—I think that's that's frightening. I wouldn't want to be in either one of those positions, but certainly not the inferior one. Yeah.
1: Well, and I guess I'm also just thinking of of simply how do I treat my neighbors and, and the idea of humility in not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less and Mm -hmm. thinking of others more and just some really basic, Mm -hmm. uh, one could say worldview. One could say philosophical ways of approaching yourself and your community around Mm you.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. I, so yes, I, that is something that we absolutely need. I think we are living through an epidemic of narcissism in our society, and most people don't realize mm. that they're being narcissistic. Um, and I think ego is a, is a huge problem. So I, I 100% agree. I don't know how you engineer that. I don't know how you <laughs> convince people to be less concerned with themselves and more concerned with the common good, but that's an, that's an ideal to strive for.
1: I, I certainly don't know either. Um, so a, a moment ago, you were speaking about uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Things have really changed since then. And we're not uh, the the fabric of America. The economy is not providing what its citizens need. And, and you you um, mentioned vision as one of them. What are some of these other elements that are not being met?
0: Um. Well, I mean, in terms of vision, uh, I think it's not just on the national scale, but I think that people need something to aspire to. Mm-hmm. And I think nationally people don't feel that. I think a lot of people in their personal lives don't feel that. I mentioned also the situation with the national debt, not the not the uh, not the public debt, but the private debt. Uh, the collapse of private sector debt that happened in 2008 and the forces that intervened in order to prolong it, which are simply exacerbating the social and economic inequities in the country. Um, I think, you know, something else that that has developed in those years has been the growth and influence of surveillance capitalism and surveillance type Mm. technologies And how they have managed to empower a new class of elites in positions of power that allow them to exercise a level of control over society that we would have considered uh, worthy of the label national crisis had we been provided it with a thought experiment. In fact, we had been. Bill Joy wrote a article for Wired in 2000 titled Why the Future Doesn't Need Us. Where he examines Mm. some of these potential themes, not just in terms of AI and robotics and the way in which we thought about it with like the Terminator movies, but also what happens when a class of human beings is empowered with a set of technologies that are akin to magic. And I think that's where we are today, but because our models of corporate concentration are structured around this idea of monopoly and monopoly pricing, we don't really see it for what it is because so much of the trade-offs are not, are bartering. They are people bartering away their attention and their personal agency in return for clicks, in return for Mm -hmm. cheaper prices, maybe on some things. Uh, But it's not, it's a, it's a different model. And I think this may be, um, it's certainly up there um, with Mm -hmm. all the, the things that I'm most concerned about, but it, I think it actually would rank at the very top. Because interesting, it's, it's yeah, it's um, it's covert. We're not aware yeah. of how we're being manipulated, and our system of government requires the agency of the population. This is something I know you've had Mike Green on the show. Mike Green talks about something similar when he talks about passive investing. So the 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 ways the way in which um, passive investing works is it depends. It has it has the embedded assumption that there are discretionary investors in the market who are pricing the assets competitively that you're purchasing systematically. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that when everyone is investing systematically, what does that look like? All of a sudden there's a, there's a departure from value in investing and something similar happens with democracy. When more and more people are checked out of the democratic process and sort of assume that someone else will handle it, we end up having, I think what we have today, which is incompetence and corruption in government. And we've seen it with Donald Trump. We've seen it now with Joe Biden, who is an enormous disappointment um, in in the situation that we're dealing with currently with Afghanistan. Uh, so I, I think I think this is I think what's particularly nerve-wracking about these types of technologies, and this type of surveillance capitalism is exactly the fact that we can't easily point to it and draw that, uh, that linear relationship between one and the other, cause and effect.
1: Interesting. And <clears throat> to, to help connect thoughts for myself, it sounds like you're saying passive investing is interesting because it's almost reflexive, like everyone just passively invests. You have variable one and variable two, and this in this first one impacts the second, but then the second one goes back and impacts the first, and so it's like this reflexive loop. Mm-hmm. And I'm at least I'm hearing, and I want to, I'm kind of putting this back to you to, to know if I'm correct here. I'm hearing you say that politics is almost similar in that the masses are just passively letting these leaders come into power, and then these leaders are impacting the masses again, and so it's almost like this reflexive cycle.
0: Ish. Yeah, so I actually I think I, I I unfortunately mixed up a few themes that are reflexive uh, and self reinforcing, uh, but yes, certainly what I, well, what I am saying is that the phenomenon that we see in in, in markets with respect to passive and mm-hmm. uh, the idea of investing in the broader market. Uh, because you can piggyback off of the work that discretionary investors do. Something similar has happened in in politics and and in American politics and in government, which is that over the decades, people have increasingly handed off their responsibilities to the broader public, uh, which they have hoped would do the work of vetting the candidates and and bringing to us uh, the cream of the crop. But I think that or I wonder perhaps if one of the reasons why we don't seem to see the cream rising, so to speak, we, yeah, we don't seem to find a lot of really great candidates out there that this might in part have to do with the fact that people have checked out of the process.
1: Yeah. And the yeah, exactly. more, why I think you to wanna... your
0: point, the worse the candidates, the more people seem to check out.
1: Mm-hmm. Why would you want to be involved? If, if you are truly someone of great quality and, and character, why would you wanna get in that mess?
0: There's also that as well. And social media plays a role there as well. Uh, and media and the denigration of, of, of candidates, the way in which the press has, I think, played a role in this as well. And again, this is not to, to attack the, pr- the press as an institution, mm-hmm. uh, it's simply to acknowledge that the economic incentives of media have changed in such a way so that many of the most successful news programs or formats that exist reward bombastic, fear-mongering propagandists, and those people misinform the public, and subsequently the algorithms that present information to viewers and to readers are not built to choose content based on its informational accuracy or its its, its benefit to the greater good. Mm-hmm. They are designed so as to garner the most amount of attention from the reader, or from the viewer.
1: That's so interesting. It sounds like a glass ceiling for wholesome character. As in, imagine Jimmy Carter. A lot of people are going to disagree. But <laughs> with, with this analogy, I shouldn't have pick, picked a, a specific person, but he is known as being like the nicest president. Like that is some stereotypes. And so just just imagine anybody you know, right Baltimore. now. <laughs> yeah. it, and and that, that's a very interesting dynamic. I have certainly thought of before, but not in that specific way that it, it really is almost a like glass ceiling for like these wholesome characters. That is maybe what we need right now someone who's able to to take take the hits and make the tough decisions. That's gonna be bad in the short term.
0: Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say that what we want is a wholesome. I think I agree with the very end of what you said. I don't know that we want a wholesome Jimmy Carter type character. Yeah,
1: um, no, I take a nice guy. Yeah, yeah, or a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. And I think what we
0: want exactly. is the, we want a tough guy, <laughs> tough guy or a tough woman. This is inevitably where we're going. Mm-hmm. We're going to have uh, a strong man or woman, and it's probably be a strong man because it's America. And the question is, will that person have uh, good or bad intentions in his or her heart? And this is—it won't be the first time. This is what I think. But it, it goes back to my point about what societies need. Can a democracy go through? Can it weather the type of storm that we are entering, Uh, a storm that is partly of its own making? Again, to to the point about 2008, we wouldn't be in this mess if in 1998 or in 2008, we hadn't conjured so much wealth into existence, coddled financial markets, bailed out uh, many bad actors who had contributed to or directly caused the crisis in the first place. And so by, by, not, by allowing these wounds to fester, we are now at a point where I don't, kn- I don't know that our current system of government can actually handle the problems that we face. We need tough decisions. And the problem is that the type mm-hmm. of decisions that need to be taken are not decisions that politicians are willing to make because politicians are accountable to the public and politicians want to get reelected and they like to do popular things. And yeah. the most popular thing is to lie to people. So, lying to people or is give not them actually, money, or give them money now, in this case, one could argue that giving people money through fiscal transfers is actually part of the solution. It's not going to be pleasant uh, for a lot of people, for millions of people. Again, they're going to be winners and they're going to be losers. But one could argue that in the current situation that we're in with the overwhelming amounts of private sector debt and the use of monetary policy. To basically prevent the gravitational collapse of all of this, this debt, we've created an, unsustain, an a, a, a sclerotic economy where people cannot actually work their way to prosperity because asset prices are so far and beyond anything that wages can create, that wages can purchase, that the only way to actually make it is with, with is if you have capital, have capital to invest in the Ponzi scheme that is the American financial system. So uh, that's just one example. Um, I'm not sure how we got on this line of the conversation, but.
1: Well, you know, I want to go one step further and ask you. So I don't know your financial situation, your savings, but if you were just a regular person working one, two, let's say two jobs, making rent, Housing's going up, food's going up, kind of your stereotypical place that a lot of folks are finding themselves in right now. Mm -hmm. And you knew everything you know currently, but you have no investments or assets. What what would you do going forward?
0: Never had anyone ask me that question. (laughs) Oh I, you know, I I feel like I need a lot of time to think about what would I do if I had zero assets? What about but all my of your understanding how, how, of knowledge? What would my and what would my income be? I mean, would I have a strong well, income or would I be?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean you you can afford you can afford rent. You can afford. Okay, so food, I don't have an, I like, don't have
0: enough. Okay, got you. I don't have enough. You don't have, to have a say, cushion. Well, I mean, I, I guess I would. I'd be trying to play the lottery, whether with whatever remaining uh, money I have at the end of the month, and let's say bu- buy some super convex cryptocurrency which is exactly why so many of these um, these various sort of Ponzi schemes exist in crypto because they're lotteries to get you over the hump. Let me
1: just say this show is not about investing advice.
0: Yeah, no, it's not investing advice. Uh, I, this is a, I'm also like theorizing here what I would do. Yeah. But I, what I've always, and I still think you can do this, so again, I don't actually think that that's what I would be doing. I think what I would be doing is I would be, well, I guess what I would probably be doing is I would be investing in myself, trying to make it possible and sustainable for me to live passionately and to do the work that I am I love to do. And I would probably be spending whatever disposable income I had beyond that, beyond investing in myself and my business, whatever business it was that I was creating, I would be using it to have experiences Uh, whether that was going, going to a, to a nice dinner on an occasion, whether it was going on a, on a vacation. Again, I don't know how much money I would be creating this hypothetical, but I don't think that what I would be doing is what I think some people do, which is YOLOing into investment opportunities with the hope of some convex payout. I would much rather be using that money in the here and now to enrich myself and to, uh, expand my own set of experiences
1: and not to beat this dead horse, but would you be worried about the next 10 years of your purchasing power being eroded even further?
0: Or like, Uh, I would give, I would, I would give up. Look, first of all, I don't think too much about the future. I mean, I, I do uh, plan as a responsible adult uh, for the future, but I, you know, is something I've talked about. I'm a brain tumor survivor. I understand very viscerally the um, how quickly life, you know, moves mm-hmm. moves by. How how it it just it's it feels like yesterday <laughs> that nine eleven happened. We're now on on the verge of the twenty year anniversary. So I don't I don't like to commit myself too much to the future because the future changes. Mm-hmm. I like to be prepared for it as best as possible. But I think it's much more important to be emotionally resilient than it is to try and save your money. Now, that's also a function of the current environment. If I were able to save more predictably and confidently, then maybe I would plan a bit more for the future. And I do plan, again, uh, and I have the luxury to plan because I've done well, but again, There are – if I were not in that position, I probably would plan a lot less and care a lot less about the future. And that incidentally is – it's ironic because low interest rates create credit availability and provide businesses with the capital to invest in the future. And yet low interest rates also incentivize spending in the here and now. So in many ways, it's not coincidental – that we find ourselves in the situation where people care less and less about the future. They're sucking from the future into today. And that's a dangerous dynamic that mm-hmm. creates I think instability, both economically initially but also in the long term socially.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so we spoke about hidden forces and we're going to wrap up soon. I'd love to hear a little more about it from your perspective and then um where folks can find it. But I, I want to ask what's, what's in the back of your mind. If you, do you have, are you just chugging along with hidden forces right now? Or what are you excited about? Are there some, some things in the works? Like what's we just said you, you, you just said you don't like to think about the future, but <laughs> are there any um, exciting things in your plate? You're looking forward to in the next bit. Uh,
0: sure. I mean, it, Insofar as my work is concerned, first of all, the longer I I have a show like this that grows in audience size and reach, the easier it is to book the types of guests that I want to speak to. So I don't currently, for example, have the ability to regularly speak with the most powerful people in the world. I've had opportunities to do that on occasion. I've had the Secretary of Defense on the show, for example.
1: I saw that. Yeah, which was super super cool. cool.
0: And so I would love to get to a place where I can speak to the current Secretary of Defense or the current President of the United States. But I'm not there yet. So that's that's, that's a goal to aspire to. I will soon be launching a newsletter that I call the Get Smart Newsletter. And it's going to be an opportunity for me to begin to put thoughts on paper, something I haven't done in a very long time. I used to Cool. Write rather prolifically, and I I have wanted to do it for a long time, but I've been rather disorganized. My wife is a uh, systems thinking guru, so she is helping me slowly where she has the time and where I have awesome. where I have the patience. Um, so she's actually all credit to her because she's making all of that possible. I launched a new music track with the show that was inspired by the soundtrack and original score from not just stranger things but more you know stranger things is a was inspired itself from a compilation of 1980s type music from movies like the goonies um never ending story stuff like that so i launched that music track recently and that speaks to some of where i just to, to where i feel like i'm taking the show um, cool yeah and so so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that um i'm excited about look some of the some of what we talked about today speaks to the changes that we are bound to we're seeing them and we will see more of them and so being in a position to talk about that and to speak to people's anxieties and to to help construct frameworks for people for helping people navigate their way through these uncertain times is deeply meaningful to me mm-hmm and I derive immense value from that, from hearing from people. I mean, as much as I love all different aspects of the show, arguably, I think what I love the most is getting emails from people, particularly young people, particularly people in high school or college, who say that the that the podcast has helped them, either in their work, in their lives, or both. So that's what... I find most meaningful and exciting, and so I I continue to look forward to doing that.
1: That's that's super awesome, and I mean, you, you do such a great job, and I'm sure you you get comments all the time. But you've obviously it's clear that you're comfortable in front of the mic. You do a lot of research beforehand. I've never Absolutely honestly true. I've never had a guess before they come on hit me with so many questions like you did. And so it was really wonderful knowing you were going to be engaged and you were, you were prepared. Mm-hmm. Not that I would have been worried, but um, it's, it's clear that you, you put a lot of passion into this, and so that's exciting. Where can folks find the, this, this podcast we've mentioned so many times?
0: So they can find us on any major podcast platform. I mean, any Uh, We're on Pandora, Spotify, Overcast, Apple, Google, wherever you want. Uh, We're also on many international airlines, including big Asian airlines like Singapore, Cafe, United, British. uh, And you can also find us at our our website. Now, you asked me that the website is hiddenforces.io. You asked me if I have anything exciting happening. We are launching new websites for both Hidden Forces and for Dimitri Kofinas because DimitriKofinas.com has – it's like a picture of me from 2014. Um, <laughs> and it's just like a one-page thing that I built for 300 bucks. So we're going to be launching new websites, but you can you can visit hiddenforces.io and currently go through the entire episode library, going all the way back to episode one. We now are at episode 207, I believe. Um. And you can also follow me personally on Twitter at kofinas with a K. And you can also follow the show at Hidden Forces Pod.
1: That's awesome for all those long haul uh, overseas airlines passengers. I'm gonna, I'm gonna so look for that next one. On I get
0: people. I love it. I love when people tell me. I, you'd be surprised to learn how many people have told me that they found Hidden Forces through through an airline. And I wonder if there's. I, it must be because way many more people have found us just, you know, g- going through one of, I, I would guess, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, the search and discovery function in iTunes and these other platforms is severely broken. And to the extent that it works, <laughs> it's so true. And to the extent that it works. Hopefully it, someone's and, listening. Would, oh, yeah, I hope so. I hope someone from, from Apple's. ITunes. I've been in touch actually with someone at Apple uh, about this, but I never heard back. But to the extent that it does work, it it depends on a narrow categorization. So for Hidden Mm. Forces, that's been a problem. We are not an investment show. We're not a marketing show. We're not a Mm. philosophy show. We're not a history show. We're not a politics show, and yet we talk about all this stuff. So maybe it is true that uh, more people tend to find us on airlines. But what I think happens is when you're on an airline like United or Singapore and you see BBC World, NPR, you know, uh, Tata TV, and then you see hidden forces. You just assume you put it in the same category as like the biggest brands in the world. So it elevates us. And I think people immediately say, wow, this is really cool. These guys are talking about something really interesting. Let me hit them up.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's a good score there. Dimitri, thank you so much for joining today. It's truly been a very fun conversation.
0: My pleasure, Bradford.
1: Well, it looks like you stuck with us to the end and thank you so much. Please like, subscribe, rate and review. It honestly is the best way to help us reach a broader audience and that's the only way we can keep bringing you good content every single week and that is our goal here. So we look forward to seeing you next week and thank you so much.